Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Grace and Truth, a study of the book 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Nick. Hey, good morning, everybody. Please open with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've been journeying through this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're getting towards the end. This week, we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 15. So please bow your heads with me as you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are here now by your Spirit, that you want to speak to us. You want to do a work through your Word to transform our hearts and minds And Lord, make us into the people you desire us to be. Lord, we ask that during this time, through your word, you would build our faith. Lord, you would draw us to yourself. And Lord, that you would speak into areas of our lives that need to be addressed. Lord, instruct us and transform us by your word and through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He was one of the most successful and wealthiest people in the world. He was highly awarded, praised, even feared by some. He became a billionaire before reaching age 50, but at age 56, Steve Jobs died of pancreatic cancer. And right before he died, this is what Steve Jobs had to say as he reflected on his life from his hospital bed. He said, I reached the pinnacle of success in the business world. In others' eyes, my life is an epitome of success. However, aside from work, I have little joy. In the end, Wealth is only a fact of life that I am accustomed to. At this moment, lying on the sickbed and recalling my whole life, I realize that all the recognition and wealth that I took so much pride in have paled and become meaningless in the face of impending death. There is a practice which has become popular in recent years called life planning. Maybe some of you have heard of it. I read a book on it myself and, and implemented some of the principles. With life planning, what they tell you to do is they tell you to look ahead. They say, imagine your funeral. Look ahead and imagine the end of your life and then plan backwards from there. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? What kinds of things would you like to have accomplished by the end of your life? What kinds of qualities and characteristics do you want to be known for after you're gone? And then they say, once you've identified those things, then make a plan starting from there and starting from today as to how you're going to get there. How long is it going to take? What are the steps that you need to take in order to get there? And what can you start doing today? There's definitely a lot of wisdom in doing that, but you know what? Here's the thing. What if you had a great plan for your life and you accomplished everything that you set out to do, all your goals, and people remember you in the future as a really great person? What Steve Jobs is telling us from beyond the grave is that no matter how much you accomplish, no matter how good of a person you were, at the end of the day, you won't enjoy any of it because you won't be here. Your life will be over. Death is the great equalizer. Because as the Bible reminds us, we brought nothing into the world and we could take nothing out of this world. The Bible also tells us this. It says that it is appointed for every person to die once and then after that comes judgment. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? Because what it tells us is, of course, on the one hand, it tells us that all of us are going to die. 
But it also says something else. Did you notice this? It says that there is something that happens after you die. After you die, here's what happens, which means that the end of your life here on earth is not the end of you. There are actually things that you experience and that happen after you die. So while there's a lot of wisdom in life planning, the problem with life planning is that it doesn't plan ahead far enough. Because as this verse tells us, the end of your life here on earth isn't going to be the end of you. There's actually something that will happen. There are things which will happen after you die. So how do you plan ahead for that? The Bible tells us that you can actually know what will happen after you die. And you can plan ahead. There are things that you can do in this life which will actually matter for all of eternity. They'll matter beyond this life. There are things that you can do even now which can make a difference for all of eternity. And that's why Paul the Apostle, writing to a young pastor named Timothy, he told him this. He said, encourage those who are rich in this life to set their hopes not on the uncertainty of riches, but instead to store up for themselves a good foundation for the future, meaning their eternal future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, what does that mean? That which is truly life. The life which is truly life. You know what that phrase implies? It implies that this life we're living right now is just a shadow, just a prelude of something greater which is to come. It means that this life which we're living right now is actually something less than the true life which we have yet to experience, which has yet to be revealed. But notice what it says at the end of that verse. The true life, this greater life, right? The life that is truly life is something which it says must be taken hold of. You must take a hold of it. In other words, taking possession of this greater form of life, this life that is truly life, getting that is not inevitable. It's not given. It's some, not something that everyone will experience. Only those who take hold of it will have it and get it. So then how do you take hold of the life which is truly life? The life which comes after this one, of which this life is merely a shadow and a prelude. How do you prepare for it? How can you make sure that you're investing your time, your energy, your resources into things which have eternal meaning and eternal value? Well, that's what we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 58. The title of today's message is The Defeat of Death and Victory Through the Resurrection. And what we're going to see in this passage is this. Here's our one-sentence summary, our takeaway truth. I would love it if you'd write it down, take a photo, whatever you got to do to take this thought with you as you go today. And it'll also be our outline for studying this passage. Okay, you ready? The hope of the resurrection fills us with courage to face life and death, and it gives direction and urgency to how we live here and now. One more time. The hope of the resurrection fills us with courage to face life and death and gives direction and urgency to how we live here and now. So we're going to take that passage and we're going to break it down into three parts and use it as our outline for studying this text. The first part, the hope of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians is a letter which was written by the Apostle Paul, to the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. And throughout this letter, Paul has been responding to 
and instructing them about various issues which had arisen in their church. Some of them were behavioral issues. Others were doctrinal issues. And one of the issues that had risen in the church that he's addressing here in chapter 15 was a question about whether there really is such a thing as life after death. See, some of the Christians in Corinth had been influenced by some strands of Greek philosophy and some strands of, of Jewish belief systems which said that there is no such thing as life after death. And so these Corinthian Christians, becoming convinced that there's no life after death, they began to think of Christianity merely in terms of it being a good tool to help you live a better life and to be a better person. They would have said Jesus was a good teacher who lived an exemplary life, but then they would have said, and yet when it comes to these issues of life and death and heaven and hell, they would have said there's nothing. When you die, that's it, game over, done. This idea that there's no life after death, it had become popular among some of the Christians there in Corinth. And here in chapter 15 of this letter, Paul the Apostle is writing to say, hang on a second. This absolutely is, there, there absolutely is such a thing as life after death. Not only is it something which is taught throughout the Bible, it's something that Jesus himself taught, uh, but also, if there were no life after death, then understand the gospel is meaningless and the death and life of Jesus were pointless. But the fact that Jesus resurrected from the dead is proof that there is indeed life after death. And here in chapter 15, Paul has been explaining what Jesus' resurrection means for us. And what he's been showing us is this, that just as Jesus was resurrected from the grave, so too we who belong to him, though our physical bodies will die, God is going to resurrect us to new and everlasting life with him in the new heavens and new earth that he is going to make where there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. It will be what we call heaven. The hope of the resurrection is that in Jesus there is hope for life beyond the grave. Through him, you can take hold of the life that is truly life. And we saw in the verses we looked at earlier it is appointed for every person to die once, and then after that comes judgment. That was Hebrews 9.27 that we looked at. What that means is that no matter who you are, the end of your life here on earth is not the end of you. All of us, the Bible says, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and there is coming a day when we will have to answer to God for the things that we have done in our lives, and in some cases, the things that we should have done but failed to. That will be the day of judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ already received the judgment for your sins, your transgressions, your failings. He received them in himself on the cross. Hey, Pastor Nick here. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. I've written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, I deal directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, or whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities? Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there actual proof that God exists and that the Bible is trustworthy? 
I address these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or who has concerns about these topics. And it's a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity, wherever books are sold, or visit nickkady.org. And to celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as a gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Be Set Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now back to today's message. Jesus, the one who lived a perfect, sinless life, on the day of judgment, he's the only one who would have nothing to worry about. And yet on the cross, he chose to take your place Receive the judgment that you deserve for the ways that you've fallen short. And Jesus did this as God in order to reconcile you to himself by removing the barrier that existed between you and him by taking the judgment upon himself. It's his gift to you because he loves you. And as you receive this gift by faith in what he did for you, then you're forgiven, you're reconciled to God, and you receive the hope of the resurrection, which is eternal life with God in heaven. And the reason you can be sure that this will really happen is because Jesus resurrected. He's the first fruits of those resurrected to eternal life. But then look what it says in verse 35. That's where we pick up. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? What Paul's doing here is he's addressing some of the questions and objections that people tended to have when it came to this topic of the resurrection, right? Some people would ask these questions thinking that these questions, in a way, debunked the idea of the resurrection or proved that it couldn't be plausible. So, so for example, some people would say, how is it even possible? How is it scientifically possible that someone who is dead would be raised up back to life. The other question is, what kind of body will they have if they are raised? These, uh, those people who ask these kinds of questions, they essentially thought that these questions were the Achilles heel in the idea of the resurrection of the dead and of life after death. They thought these questions proved that there couldn't be such a thing as resurrection and eternal life. After all, who would want to live forever in a body that was halfway decomposed, right? Or, or a body that a child who died as an infant, why would they want to be raised and, and live for eternity in that infant body? Or, or let's say somebody who, uh, who had a disability. Why would they want to go on forever living in that state? It would be terrible, in some cases even grotesque. But Paul responds to these objections starting in verse 36. And here's what he says at the beginning of verse 36. You foolish person. If you read this in the original text, it's much more emphatic. He says basically, you fool. These are stupid questions is what he's saying. People thought that these were slam-dunk arguments that disproved the idea of the resurrection and eternal life. But Paul says, no, these are not slam-dunk arguments. These are cheap, worthless, foolish arguments. First of all, the question of how it can be possible for God to raise the dead. Are you serious? He's God. That's the kind of thing that he can do, right? It's answered by the fact that God can do anything. I love what Paul the Apostle said when he stood before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verse 8. He said, Why would it be thought incredible by any of you 
that God raises the dead. Why would you find that even incredible? Remember, the difficulty of any action is measured by the ability of the one performing that action. So, for example, there are things which you can do which it would be impossible for a small child to do. But for you, it's not even difficult because of your superior strength and ability. It would be impossible for me to lift a train car up in the air. And yet there are machines that do it all day long. They lift train cars up in the air at the train yard. In the same way, if God is all-powerful and God created all things out of nothing, then not only would it not be impossible for God to raise the dead, it wouldn't even be difficult And do you realize that that same principle applies when it comes to your life as well? There are things in your life which may seem impossible or insurmountable, too difficult for you. They might be impossible, but do you realize that for God, not only are they not impossible, they're not even difficult. And so in whatever situation you're facing today, you can bring that situation before the Lord, knowing that with him, nothing is impossible. He can bring life out of death. And if he can do that, then certainly he has the ability to work and make a way, even in the most difficult of circumstances and dire of situations. So you can bring your needs and your cares to him in prayer, and you can do so with confidence. Not only is he able to do great things, but you know what else? He is also willing. Not only is he able to do great things, he's also willing. I love what it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Look at what it says. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And this is my favorite part. For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, not only is God able, but God is willing. He cares. You can bring your needs to him confidently, knowing that not only is he able, but he cares and he is willing. Now, maybe some of you, though, you hear that and you would say, wait a second, I have brought my needs before God and he hasn't fixed my situation. Or maybe he hasn't given me yet the thing that I've been asking for or praying for. So if you say that God is able and he is willing, then why hasn't he answered my prayer? So not only is God able, and not only is God willing, but you need to remember this as well. God is also all-knowing. He knows the outcome of every potential course of action, and he is so deeply committed to you that he is working out a plan for your ultimate good. So sometimes you might ask for something, and because of his perfect knowledge and his full love for you, Rather than giving you that thing, he might say no. He might say, not right now. Because you know what we have with God? I think that some people wish that God was a genie. Because you know how a genie works. As long as you say the magic words, the genie is obligated to give you what you want. I think sometimes we think that. As long as I say the magic words, as long as I do the right things, God will be obligated to give me what I want. But you know what we have with God? We have with God not not a genie in a bottle, but a father in heaven. Not a genie in a bottle, but a father in heaven. The difference between a genie and a father, a genie's obligated to give you what you want if you say the right words, but a father is the one who knows you best and loves you most. And he won't just give you what you want, he will give you what he knows that you need. So you can think about it like this. God loves you so much that when you ask him for something, he will give you exactly what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. 
So when it comes to how God is able to raise the dead, it's not that hard. He's all-powerful. For him, nothing is impossible nor even difficult. But the other question about what kind of bodies we will be raised with, Paul is going to give a more detailed answer now, starting in the second part of verse 36. So this brings us to the second part of our sentence. The hope of the resurrection fills us with courage to face life and death. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 36. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Paul says this. You want an example of how the resurrection works, what it's like? It's like a seed that's planted in the ground. When you bury a seed in the ground, that seed is destroyed, but it gives birth to something greater. And he says that's what it's like when a Christian dies. When you bury the body of a believer, it's like sowing a seed into the ground, which one day will come out of the earth as a transformed body in the resurrection. I want you to think about that next time you pass by the cemetery. You see those rows of gravestones. Think about them as seeds that have been planted, and some of them are going to be springing up to new life in the resurrection. As sad as it is to bury a deceased loved one, imagine if you were planting a seed, a farmer who's sowing his seeds. He places those seeds in the ground, never to be seen again. And yet that farmer, he doesn't weep over the seeds as he plants them, right? He doesn't say, oh, my seeds, I'm never going to see them again. A tragedy, right? No, instead he sows those seeds in hope with eager expectation, knowing that those seeds, he will see them again, but in a different way. They'll be transformed into something much greater, much more glorious than as they went into the ground. He won't see them again, but from those seeds will come up a more glorious and infinitely better body, an infinitely greater life. See, that's what the death of a believer is like. Not a final tragic loss, but the sowing of a seed that will one day rise again in new and greater form. I love what George Herbert, the English poet, said. He said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him merely a gardener, right? Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him merely a gardener. Notice again what it says in verses 37 and 38. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen. When you plant a wheat seed, for example, what grows up out of the ground isn't just another wheat seed. No, it's something which is different in form, and yet it's related to and comes from the seed that was planted. So we should expect the same thing with our resurrection bodies. The, the bodies we will have in the life that is to come, they will be different from, yet related to, our present earthly bodies. And that's an incredible thought, actually, because think about what this means for those who have lived this life with disabilities. Think about what it means for those who died in infancy or as young children or who died in old age when their bodies were breaking down. Think about those who have imbalances in the chemistry of their brain or who have chronic health problems. The promise and the hope of the resurrection is that you will receive a new body, and that new body will be related to and derived from your current body. It will come from it, but just as a stalk of wheat comes from the seed, it will be that much grander and more glorious. 
Guys, I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure that my resurrection body is going to have some pretty amazing hair, okay? <laughs> you're, you're really going to like it. I'm going to invest in some brushes. It's going to be so cool. All right, listen. There won't be a need for canes or walkers or eyeglasses. There won't be a need for medication or wheelchairs anymore. Look at what it says in verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. Our new bodies, which we will have in the resurrection, will be of a different form and more glorious than the bodies we have now. And now, then in the next few verses, verses 42 through 44, Paul is going to give us four ways in which our resurrection bodies, our new bodies, will be different. So way number one, he says, first of all, in verse 42, our current bodies are perishable. They die. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com. 